welcome to UConn 360. That's the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. This is our 102nd episode, hard to believe, and coming to you not today from beautiful uh, stores, Connecticut, but around the state of Connecticut. We are the UConn 360 team. My name is Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. Joining me as always, my colleague, Julie Bartuka. Julie, how are you? I'm doing well. I actually am in beautiful stores, Connecticut today. Oh, excellent. It's lovely right. outside. Fantastic. Uh, well, we have a, a great guest this week who I think is going to be very interesting for people because his area of expertise is something that affects everyone and is very much in the news lately. So I'm looking forward to that. But before we meet him, we've got some news to talk about. Yeah, I just wanted to draw attention to an event, a month months long, I guess, event happening at the Avery Point campus. Seven days a week through September 29th, visitors can stroll through Open Air 2022, which is an annual outdoor sculpture exhibit. And this one features some meaningful works that are designed to spark conversation on some kind of controversial topics and some really cool commentary on um, different things inherent in the art that you can read about at a story that UConn Today writer Kim Phillips wrote about the meaning of the pieces and the goals of the exhibit, which is at s.uconn.edu slash open dash air. Excellent. Yeah. And by the time people are listening to this, we will have returned to campus for the fall semester. We're recording this a few days early, so I'm hoping that things will go smoothly. No oh, gosh. But this will be our our most diverse freshman class, first year class in the history, and diverse in terms of ethnic group, and also diverse in terms of marginalization marginalization. Forgive me within higher education, and in terms of people who are the first generation in their family to attend college. So it's very exciting. Uh, a lot of people uh, coming to UConn. It's almost like it was before the pandemic, maybe not quite. A lot of things are, are still reasonably in place, but starting to feel a bit more like we're approaching normal. It really does. It feels a lot more normal. There's a lot less, you know, announcements coming out about what we need to do to get back to campus. So it feels a little bit more status quo. Yeah. I Very say that just despite being home today because I think I have COVID. So <laughs> I don't know how, how normal things are. Yes. <clears throat> but it's all very uh, confusing. It is all very confusing. So I, I, I said at the top of the show, we have a, an exciting guest. And Julie, tell me who we're going to meet today. I will. In 2019, just right before the pandemic, the university launched its Institute of the Environment with the goal of charting a course for a greener future. Board of Trustees Distinguished Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, Michael Willig, was named its executive director. Willig, who has been a UConn professor since 2005, has for decades studied organisms from bacteria and fungi to plants, snails, and insects to reptiles, birds, and mammals from ecological, biogeographical, and conservation biological perspectives. His enduring dedication to a multidisciplinary approach to studying and teaching mammalogy, which is the biology of mammals, earned him the 2021 C. Hart Merriam Award from the American Society of Mammalogists on its 100th anniversary. He has published his research globally and is cited over 26,000 times. And according to the American Society of Mammalogists, he is among the top 2% of distinguished ecologists in the world. And we are so lucky to have him here with us today. Welcome, Professor Willig. Thank you for that very, very kind introduction. <laughs> hey, it's all facts, right? So tell us first about the Institute of the Environment. That's kind of why I know you and why we've been working together recently. What are some of the things that the Institute does? You know, the environment, as you had mentioned earlier, is, is an incredibly broad field that sort of includes almost every facet of the university, every department, every college. And so the Institute represents a, a place, both physical and sort of mental, where people can come together and collaborate and interact in addressing some of the most challenging problems that face society in the 21st century. 
And so we're sort of an umbrella organization that include the Center for Environmental Sciences and Engineering, the Connecticut State Museum of Natural History, the Office of Sustainability, and I forgot one. Um, uh, National Resources. The Natural Resources Conservation <laughs> Academy. So we essentially do research, education, outreach, and engagement. So we're sort of a microcosm of the university with an environmental perspective. You've said, and I was reading some articles and I quoted you in preparation for this, and, and you've said that sustainability is perhaps the, the biggest challenge of the 21st century. I think some people get a sense of, of the challenge being very big, but could you talk a bit about what an effective response to that challenge might look like? Like what kinds of things would you like to see? Well, I think that there's a variety of things. Sort of underlying all of it is knowledge. Without knowledge, we cannot direct actions toward a sustainable future. So first of all, there's so much information that's missing that allows us to move forward in an effective way. The second is, you know, one of my other favorite things to say is it's not hard to design a sustainable future. It's hard to design a desirable future. And and so therein comes the real challenge, because now we're not only talking about science, we're talking about how human values, how, how the things that individuals and groups prefer and appreciate sort of mold how they weight the costs and benefits of every decision we make. So I think that the challenge is sort of having that knowledge and the, the data and the information available so that we can make forecasts and then individuals from social and economic and political perspectives can evaluate alternatives and make decisions about those things that are best for the future. So, you know, Mad Max lived in a highly sustainable world, but there's not one that I'd want to live in. So, <laughs> so what we need to do is sort of not only be sustainable, but make sure that that, that future, and that's sort of a, a joking way to say that environmental justice is really important. Not all members of society benefit or pay the costs to be sustainable in the same way. And so one of the really big emphases as we move forward is how do we intersect consideration of environmental justice? So not that just on average people benefit, but that every group at least has some minimum benefit that's quite high, frankly. And so we we, we don't want to just sort of optimize some mean value. We want to make sure that every group, every individual has the capacity to achieve their potential within the constructs of the resources that are available. The enormity of this challenge and the seemingly relentless drumbeat of grim news surrounding it can lead some people to a temptation towards bleak resignation about the state of the planet, doomerism, as it's called. What would you say to someone who thinks there's no point in making an effort to address the challenges of sustainability? Listen to your children. I think that the young people today, they get it. They, they understand that each individual and that human beings are a part of the world. We have to make sacrifices to move forward. We have to, we have to use logic and we have to use information and data to make predictions about how the world will operate in some future scenarios. We have to make sacrifices, unfortunately. You know, and, and I, I think that the, that the younger generation is more knowledgeable of the, of the situation that the world in kind of recognizes more than my future, it's their future that's at stake or their kids' futures that are at stake. And that if we don't take action now, it really is the gloom and doom that you talked about. I think there's lots of evidence that there's still time for hope. And I think that assuming that sort of more hopeful outlook, but acknowledging the challenges that are there will provide us with opportunities to move forward. That actually prompts a question that I've I've had. Have Have you noticed since you started teaching, or maybe even just in the last 10, 15 years, have you noticed changes in perspectives of the students? 
Yes, I think there's a, a lot of angst. There's a real concern uh, about what the future is and that their future might not be as good as their parents' future. And that that's an amazing burden, frankly, that individuals have to deal with. And as you mentioned earlier, there's for some, it's a, a, a sense of hopelessness. But I think that what the university does is it really provides students with the tools to address the situation so that it doesn't become hopeless. And I'm just really impressed with the activism of our students at UConn. They're bright, they're, they're interested, they're hardworking. They want to solve some of these challenging problems and they're willing to get their hands dirty and spend their time and effort to move forward. And I think that's one of the really refreshing things. So getting back to one of your previous questions, why do we have hope? Because we have people that are willing to do what I just said and that have the capacity to do so. So that's one of the really great things about a university. We help empower the future. For me, it's just such an exciting profession to be involved in. That's a perfect segue into one of the questions I had, which is why is UConn kind of, I know a lot of universities have these kind of institutes like this, but why is UConn really well-suited to take this on? And what are some of the opportunities that our students get through the university and the institute? One of those important things is that I think that we're a comprehensive university. You know, we have an amazing diversity of colleges and departments so that we have sort of the intellectual understanding that can be allocated towards solving society's problems. We're a land-grant institution, a sea-grant institution, a space-grant institution. We have a College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. We have a Human Rights Institute. We have an Institute of the Environment. So, so we have many of the important players as we move forward to give students opportunities to broaden and deepen their education, but also to address some of these problems in substantive kinds of ways. And I get to brag about the Institute of the Environment. And in, in particular, I'm going to brag about the Office of Sustainability, which is an integral part of the Institute of the Environment. One of the really important things, the thing that distinguishes UConn is, you know, we walk the talk. We're one of the greenest universities in the country, if not in the world, by many, many standards. And the Office of Sustainability here plays a big role in that. We have sort of two programs. One is called Sustainability Interns, where students intern, they get paid, they come, they work for the office, and they address issues of sustainability in terms of the operations of the university, whether it's recycling, energy kinds of considerations of the extent to which we're green and the energy sources that we use, protection of biodiversity, recycling of water, recycling of tennis shoes, recycling of everything. <laughs> students get to actually analyze data about how the university, when the university is really a microcosm, it's a city. In fact, it's a modest-sized city. And so the problems the university faces are just like the problems towns and cities face. And students get hands-on experience looking at all the issues of sustainability, documenting how we've improved or haven't improved, and also helping to identify programs that we can put in place to enhance our sustainability. That's one program. And then another one that's just started last year, it's the eco-captains. And each one of the dorms uh, in the university will have an eco-captain. And they're sort of a liaison between the office of sustainability and sustainability issues in the broader sense, and the day-to-day -day activities of students in the dorms. And so they help deal with the particular issues about turning off the lights when you leave, making sure you don't have runny faucets, keep the doors closed, don't let the cold air out or the warm air in, depending on the season that we're in, so that sort of an environmental ethic becomes part of the day-to-day -day life of students in our dormitories. And so those are really cool opportunities for students to get hands-on experience, but also to meet other students with like minds, but equally important to perhaps meet students without those same kinds of perspectives so that they can engage in a safe conversation about, you know, why do you believe or think this? Why does somebody else believe or think that? 
and try to come to a broader understanding of issues. Hmm. I have a friend who's been a, an activist on environmental issues for a long time. And I recently asked her if I was going to donate, I was looking to donate money. And I said, what's the best use of my money? Is it, you know, carbon offsets? Is it animal habitat preservation? What is it? And, and she gave me a list of groups that essentially are lobbyists in Washington that do lobbying on sustainability and climate issues. And she said, you know, public policy is where the rubber really meets the road. I, I was wondering what you'd think about that, especially coming from a science background. Has it been have you had to like do a lot of learning in the political process? Has anything been surprising to you as, as the sort of policy scope of the challenge presents itself? Yeah, that's that's probably, frankly, one of the areas that I'm least versed in. And I'd show my bias and I would say the best long-term investment in sustainability is education. <laughs> of course, you know, I'm a professor at a university, <laughs> so that's sort of like a duh moment. But frankly, it's also one that I believe in, you know, and so I think that that's really an important issue. And I think that, you know, we... we we live in a world where it seems like beliefs and knowledge are considered to be equal to each other and that information and data and facts and logic aren't as important as beliefs. And so to the extent that many, many people adhere to those precepts, I think higher education has failed, frankly, you know. And, and so I, I think that if we really want to empower enough people to make decisions that are both sustainable and desirable, we have to provide them with the tools and perspectives and experiences to understand the difference between beliefs and knowledge, but also to understand the role of logic and data in making decisions. Like when I choose a car mechanic to go to, I go to a car mechanic who uses the scientific method to understand what the cause of the problem is, why my car won't run. I don't want to go to a car mechanic that says, well, I believe it's this. I want to go to a car mechanic that says, based on my experience, my observations of the operations of the vehicle under these conditions, you need a new muffler or you need to change your spark plugs as opposed to something else. We use science all the time without knowing it in everyday life. And we need to bring those same kinds of logical constructs to how we analyze all problems. Not that science is the only way of knowing. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying it's an important way of knowing. And it's one where logic and facts are important for coming to conclusions that drive action. Have there been any recent developments, either scientifically or even politically, policy-wise, that have struck you as particularly hopeful in this realm? Positive? I'd actually have to say no. (laughs) <laughs> I feel like nationally and internationally, where it is in a kind of a dark space right now, where it's hard to see where the divisions that are present in the world are hindering us from making really important decisions. And I think that we tend to talk to those that think like us already, and therefore we don't affect change. And I think we need to find ways to talk to people with whom we disagree, but doing it in a collegial and and supportive and safe environment. And that's what colleges and universities are all about. But we need to do that more. We need to practice it more often. And I haven't seen enough of that happening, frankly, to be super encouraged. You know, I hate to be the purveyor of gloom and doom, but, you know, I think that that's really a sad condition that the world's in. But hopefully, again, my enthusiasm is that the students are of a different mind. They're much more open to talking to each other, challenging each other, keeping their personal beliefs and prejudices open for everyone to look at and to move forward in a safe and fair way. On a slightly lighter note, I know you've gotten (laughs) to travel all over the world to do research. Do you have a favorite research experience or a favorite place you've traveled to in the course of your research? 
Well, yeah, I'd have to. I, I, yes. So there, there are many. So it's, it's hard to choose. But I but I likely select Brazil and I'd select northeastern Brazil. And it, it happens to be the place I went to to do my dissertation back in the dark ages. But that's part of what made it really interesting. So northeastern Brazil is a very poor part of the country. And it's also when people think of Brazil, they think of wet, warm, lush, green vegetation, the tropics. And where I worked, it was a semi-arid area that was subjected to drought and in an alternative years with flooding. So it was, they called it a zone of calamity because it sort of had these extremes of it either rained a lot or it didn't rain at all. And so it was a really interesting tropical environment to go to. But it's the first time that I ever left the United States. I went to Brazil where they spoke Portuguese and I did not speak Portuguese. I spoke the equivalent of two years of college Spanish. Culturally, it's the first time I was ever in a society where I was the white person in a group that was dominated by people of color. Uh, it was a culture that you know was a Latino or Latinx uh, culture compared to a more Anglo culture where I grew up. And so from a personal perspective, it was amazing. And I think it was the first place where I learned that sometimes it's the people that have the least or the most generous. So for me, scientifically, it was very cool because I got to work on bats in in a tropical environment, but I I got to really expand my horizons. And I think international experiences are incredibly important. And I'm really glad to see how strong UConn is in promoting our global citizenship. And the Office of Global Affairs is a tremendous advocate for that. The picture of you, I think you have a cheetah or something on your website. Uh That is pretty cool. So you must have many, many exciting memories of your decades of research so far. And and now you're on this kind of new endeavor with, I know you're still doing research, but with leading this exciting new initiative. It is really exciting. And it's wonderful to have so many faculty members that are like-minded in terms of what their scientific interests are and and students that are just really highly engaged in trying to make the world a better place. And so UConn has been a wonderful place for me over the past almost 20 years now, both in terms of research, but also in terms of my administrative experiences in the Institute. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for talking to us. This has been great. You know, for this episode of Tom's History Shelf, I thought we could go back to the golden age of radio. Oh. And and if we had a more involved production ethic right now, I'd have like a tinny filter over my voice. I'm kidding. (laughs) Hey, maybe Um, we will, Tom. Maybe we will one day. You never know. In the early 1940s, there was a popular national radio show called Quiz Kids. It was broadcast on the NBC Blue Network. There used to be two NBCs. And the premise of the show was... Listeners would send in questions and there'd be a panel of kids ranging in age from, I think the youngest was like four or five, all the way to 16. And they would try to answer the questions and the top three winners, question answerers, would return the next week. It's like a little like Jeopardy almost. They didn't win any money because it was the 40s. They got a they got a, a, a government savings bond uh, okay. for $100 <laughs> if they won. And uh, as bland as this sounds, this was like a huge, huge, huge hit. They had about 20 million listeners at the height wow. of the show. And the, the four most popular winners traveled the country raising money for war bonds. And they raised some insane amount of money for war bonds. Millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars for war bonds. They got to meet Eleanor Roosevelt at the White House. They got to meet all kinds of celebrities of the day whose names will mean nothing to our listeners. Like, Can you read some of them? Fred Allen, Jinx Falkenberg. Jack Benny. People might know Jack Benny. Jack Benny, yeah. Eddie Cantor, who they apparently all hated. But anyway, the most popular and most successful was a a young boy from Chicago, Illinois, named Joel Cooperman. 
And uh, he became kind of the breakout star because he was very, very young when he started. He was very, very smart, kind of a child prodigy. That was the, the, the impression. And uh, Joel Cooperman graduated from the show at 16, but they kept him around because he was so popular. By then, he was going to the University of Chicago at a younger age and having a very difficult time because this is now the 1950s. They did television. And if you were famous for being like a really smart, good kid, maybe other kids didn't like that so much. So he was <laughs> apparently Aww. bullied pretty horribly. Oh, no. In college. <clears throat> and then a visiting professor told him, I swear this is going in a Yukon direction. A visiting professor <laughs> told him, which apparently is a revelation to him, Joel, why don't you just leave the country? Like go study <laughs> somewhere else. And he apparently never thought of that. So, but he went and moved to England and he studied at Cambridge, got his degree, came back, got his advanced degree from Harvard and in the early 1960s, became a professor of philosophy at UConn. Oh. He taught here for uh, almost 50 years. Hmm. And what's particularly interesting about this is that he eventually as an adult came to like really, really regret his experience as a child star. Oh. And he kind of talked about how it, it well, actually, he didn't talk about it at all. So apparently he was so nervous that people would recognize him that when he was at like faculty gatherings and stuff, he lived in Mansfield. It was at faculty gatherings. If people mentioned the radio, he would leave the room in case it came up. It's like the opposite of Ken. <laughs> <laughs> Ken will Ken. find someone Shout in a three mile radius talking about the radio and he will show up in that room. Yeah. Yeah, not so much for Professor Cooperman. He really wouldn't talk about it. There was a book written in the early 1980s by a former quiz kid named Ruth Duskin, who became a journalist and an expert on child development. And it was called Mm -hmm. Whatever Happened to the Quiz Kids. And so she tracked down some of these people, some of the big stars, to try to find out what became of them. He was the only one who wouldn't participate. He wrote her a letter saying, I'm not going to, I don't want to be involved in this. Wow. Um, some of them had scarred. Some of them were successful. Like one became a diplomat and was America's first ambassador to Mongolia. There you go. Okay. There was one very tragic story. Actually, he's interviewed in Studs Turkle's books, Working. His name is Gerard Darrow. And he was like a very young star and uh, was on the cover of Life magazine at one point and his life went off the rails. Hmm. But Professor Cooperman really, really wouldn't talk about it. Just absolutely. And the reason I'm saying this is because his son, Michael Cooperman, is an award-winning cartoonist, illustrator. I don't know what to call people who write graphic novels. Graphic novelists? I don't know. Graphic novelists, I think. He's an Eisner award-winning graphic novelist. Grew up in Mansfield, and he wrote a memoir about his dad's experiences called All the Answers, which I just recently read. That and sounds really good, yeah. And as his dad was being to suffer from dementia, and so Michael Cooperman was trying to like finally interview his dad about his life and try to learn more about it, and he found all these scrapbooks that had been hidden in the house of his days as a quiz kid. And so the book is kind of about that and about trying to track down sort of why things went so wrong for his dad. I mean, the answer is that his, apparently his mother, Joel Cooperman's mother, was very much a stage parent and uh, kind of pushed I just, him. I just listened to the Jeanette McCurdy book. Yes. You heard about this? Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's exactly that kind it's of. It's that. Yeah. It's not good for people. Not good for kids. Not, this was not good for him. But he, I mean, sounds like he didn't figure out how to like cope with and process it but he did make something of his life right? yes absolutely yeah although i will say in ruth duskin's book in the chapter on joel Goodman, she's like you know we're all trying to figure out why someone so smart and so accomplished ended up at the university of connecticut okay ruth well i'm trying to back figure off out, ruth duskin if you're so smart and you were a journalist in chicago why were you working at a weekly and not the chicago sometimes or the chicago tribune how about that Rude. She's passed Ouch. away, so she, she can't. She can't get mad. Her family can probably come after you. Probably. That's rude. And I mean, the University of Connecticut was a different, had a different uh, reputation back in the day. It did, but in in her book, she fortunately quotes one of his colleagues who said that the reason he seemed very happy, he won a teaching award here, is very popular with students, and that he found a very supportive environment. Yeah, um, Ruth. Maybe yeah, Ruth, you should think off. about that, Ruth. Th- 
They actually Google had a him. they actually had a conference on the Quiz Kids at UConn in I think eighty four or eighty five because after the book came out there was sort of renewed interest in this and they did like a scholarly conference because UConn had a lot of uh, child development experts so part of the conference was like a scholarly like is this good for children like what does it say about child development hmm. and apparently Joel Cooperman like left the country the week of the conference like so determined. To yeah. not have any association with the quiz kids, and he like left the country. But the book, Michael Cooperman, all the answers, it's really good. It's it's a graphic novel, and it's very moving. They had a very difficult relationship, and he really thinks that the son really thinks that the, the quiz kids and the experience of that was kind of at the heart of it. That his father was sort of scarred by this and never really knew how to relate to people in a way after that. Wow, that's so, fascinating. Yeah. So, see, see the corners that we shine yeah. a flashlight into yeah so if you're like me you can now go on youtube or spotify and track down old recordings of quiz kids Ooh. programs they're they're very much of their time i'll say that all right i'm gonna check it out that's it everyone uh, thank you for listening thank you professor willie for coming on the show thank you joel cooperman for your years of service at the university of connecticut if you want to learn more about any of these topics and other topics go ahead and find us on twitter at yukon podcast you can find me on twitter at TJ Breen. And you can always find what's going on if you point your web browser to today.yukon.edu. Julie, how about you? I'm at Yukon. Nope. I'm at Julie Barduka. I don't really tweet all that much anymore. And yeah, that's about it. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time.